Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to Central this morning. Those of you here who've braved the weather and those joining us online, welcome to worship the Lord here at Central. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. We're continuing to study the letter of Paul to the Galatian Christians, and we're on chapter 2, verses 11 to 14 together this morning. Oh, I should say, I was out of town at a conference this week, and my plane was canceled on Thursday and on Friday, and got back late yesterday afternoon, so I didn't prepare questions for you. So if you're in a small group and you do a sermon discussion group, write your own questions down today and be prepared to study with your group. While you're turning either in your Bible or in the bulletin to Galatians 2, 11 to 14, let me ask, how many of you know who Owen Wilson is? Some of you know who Owen Wilson is? He's been in tons of movies, everything that Wes Anderson has ever made, but uh, maybe some of you know him more as the voice of Lightning McQueen in Cars. Owen Wilson is a Texan with boyish looks, and who am I really to comment on somebody's boyish looks? But... He has a distinguishing feature. He has a really crooked nose. Have you noticed that? It's, it's kind of large and it's misshapen because he broke it so many times and he never had it set properly. And now it's healed in a curved way. For his nose ever to be straightened, he would have to have it broken again and set. I'll tell you this because the same thing happens in our lives with our sin. Our sin misshapes us And it remains unchecked. It alters our lives. And when we continue down that crooked path to slavery to our sin, and we all need to be broken. And it's through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that he enters our lives and breaks us and then begins the process of remaking us together in Christ. He confronts us with that truth that we are desperate sinners. We are wicked without Christ. And yet in Christ, we are more loved than we could ever imagine. He takes our sin upon himself as he went to the cross for us, dying in our place and gives us in exchange his perfect record of righteousness received by faith. And God declares us clean. We are justified as we'll see and study next week. Our guilt is removed so that by faith in Christ we appear just as if we'd never sinned and just as if we'd always obeyed. We're made righteous in Christ. But that's not where that good news ends of what the power of the gospel does. He continues not only by forgiving the guilt of our sin, but by the power of the Spirit removing its pollution, removing its corruption. That's what the Bible calls sanctification. He changes us. He conforms us that we might look more like Christ. And so that that happens... So that we don't remain misshapen by our sin, the Holy Spirit enters into conflict with you and me to bring change, to bring transformation. It's gospel conflict to remake us. And sometimes he deploys us into one another's lives as instruments in his hands to show us that life-changing power. Who's that person in your life who is willing to bring gospel conflict, even when it's hard, that you might know the work of Jesus. Let's pray together as we turn to God's word. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit and open our hearts, that we would lay hold of the truth this morning, that we would see that mighty work of your spirit who comes to bring change 
into our lives. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11. But when Cephas, Cephas was Peter's Aramaic name, by the way, but when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God will stand forever. Paul begins by talking about Antioch. So to give you a little bit of background of, of what that city was like, it was established in about 300 BC, and it was a, 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 a city built uh, to have lots of different kinds of people living in it, but they did something distinct. They built a wall, not only around the city, but in the middle of the city of Antioch to keep people of Syrian background separated from those of Greek background. And as the Roman Empire grew and dominated, not only were there Syrians and Greeks in Antioch, but 18 different ethnic groups divided the population, many of them in walls in the city. There was ethnic violence everywhere. And the only way that the Romans knew to control it was through segregation, keeping everybody apart. But then there was a church that was birthed in Antioch, and it became a launching pad for God's mission in the story of the book of Acts because it was such an incredible picture of what happens with the gospel. This church, unlike many others, wasn't Jewish, and neither was it Gentile. This church was both. It was a new kind of congregation. It was a life-on-life fellowship of people from all kinds of background who had virtually nothing in common with one another except a common belief in the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. That belief, that, that gospel brought into that divided city, that incredibly divided city, a new expression of unity that would be possible. It was a city built to reinforce differing ethnicities, and yet this church was drawing the people together, and they had never seen anything like this before. In fact, there was no word to describe what was happening. So maybe you know this famous fact about the church in Antioch. It was there that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. You know why? The people of Antioch invented a word. They had to invent a word because there was nothing to describe what they were experiencing. All these Jews and Gentiles, very different people, brought into the same family, the same group, was unlike anything they'd experienced. And the only way they knew to describe them were Christians, little Christs. It has to be Christ that can do something like this that we've never seen in the history of the world. They were a new creation together, as Paul calls them in Galatians 6. They had to invent a word to describe that reconciling power of what God is able to do. So imagine how disruptive and how challenging it was for Peter to come to Antioch from Jerusalem. 
from those Jewish Christians. And when he got there, he experienced this incredible unity. And no one was forced to follow the the Jewish ceremonial law, the dietary laws and all the rest. He lived life in freedom in Christ together with this group that had been bound together until his friends from Jerusalem showed up. And when his friends from Jerusalem showed up, Peter began to back away as if these Gentile Christians weren't enough. As if their faith, their trust in the promise of the Savior wasn't enough. So Paul, a brother in Christ, called him out. He called him back to live, verse 14, in step with the truth of the gospel. Gospel conflict. The Holy Spirit used Paul for gospel conflict to set this church back on the road to gospel truth. What does that look like? What does gospel conflict look like? Well, three points for you this morning. First, gospel conflict can actually draw people together. Sometimes we're afraid of conflict. And we think conflict is what drives us apart. But when processed through the lens of the gospel, conflict doesn't have to be a tool for discord. Instead, it can identify things that separate us, sins that that separate us, and we can be drawn back together when we deal with our conflict through the gospel. That's what happened here. Remember, Peter was, in early book of Acts, the apostle to lead the outreach to his fellow Jews. And yet, God had him experience things beyond them. You might remember in the early chapters of Acts, he was sent to go visit Simon the Tanner, who lived by the sea. He stayed in Simon's house and his occupation as a, as a tanner meant that he was always unclean, ceremonially unclean. It was not right according to Jewish law for Peter to go stay at Simon's house. And yet God sent him there to, to take the gospel to his house. Another story right after that with Cornelius, God sent him to another Gentile because the Lord was opening up Peter's eyes to see the further truth of the gospel that the promise is made for all the nations and we can be brought together in one in Christ. So when Paul, uh, when Peter arrived in Antioch in verse 11, he saw it at work. He experienced it. He, He lived in peace with these Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians together without following the ceremonial law of the Jews. It says in verse 12, he used to eat with them. It was, it was his usual practice for a while until his friends from Jerusalem got there. From James, verse 12, meaning James's circle of influence, the Jerusalem Jewish church, and Peter began to draw back and separate, verse 12 says, gradually removing himself from eating with Gentiles, moving back, back, back from associating with the Gentiles, fellowship with the Gentiles, And we may be tempted to see this as some overreaction. Why was it such a big deal? Maybe Paul overreacted. Maybe he was a little too sensitive about this thing. Like maybe this was like middle school kids fighting about who gets to sit at what table for lunch. But that's not what was happening. For Jews especially, table fellowship meant fellowship together before the face of God. That's what table fellowship meant. By eating at the same table, they were having each person sharing in the blessing that was spoken. A prayer that united them speaking to the same God. That table fellowship is what brought them together. They were united together, not just sitting together, but bound together in love and fellowship and belonging to God and also to one another. That table fellowship was about union. 
So why did Peter begin to back away? Why did Peter begin to separate? Verse 12 tells us because he was afraid of the circumcision party. He was afraid of those friends that came from the Jerusalem church. What was he afraid of? He was afraid of losing face. He was afraid of their scorn. Peter knew that some of these people that came from the Jerusalem church thought that Gentiles didn't belong. They couldn't have God's favor unless they became Jewish first. They thought, if you want to fellowship with us, you got to become like us. you got to be circumcised. You have to follow the ceremonial law. You have to follow all the dietary laws and all the rest. And if Peter were to side with the Gentiles instead of his own people, what would they think of him? He was afraid to welcome people that his friends thought were unworthy to come to fellowship at the table of the Lord. It was fear and it was cowardice. That's what bound Peter up here. So much of our sin is rooted in fear and in cowardice. Fear of standing for the gospel because we might receive scorn from somebody. We fear the loss of reputation in the eyes of somebody that we really care about. And sometimes we'll do whatever it takes in order to protect our reputation, in order to protect what other people think about us. And if we're so consumed with the approval of man, then our ability to love other people diminishes. Here's what I mean. If we're so consumed with someone else's approval, we might not tell them the truth. We might say, the risk of telling the truth is too high, so I'm just going to stay silent because this relationship is too important for me right now. Now, there may be a good reason not to confront someone at a particular time about a sin because you can't confront everybody about everything, right? But fear and cowardice is never the reason that the Lord gives us. Or we might have a hard time standing up for someone who really needs us to stand up for them. Maybe we're acting like Peter, walking away from someone who really needs our care because we're afraid of who might be watching us at the moment. The truth is that I can be so much like Peter, full of the fear of peer pressure, the pull of cowardice, losing face, wondering what you'll think of me. Maybe you're a little bit like that too. Do you ever find yourself pulling back from reaching out someone who might be considered scandalous in some way because you're afraid of what your church friends might think? That's where Peter was. As we look around our our tables of fellowship in Jesus, who's present and who's not? Who is allowed at your table, even in your own home? Who is allowed at your table and, and who is kept out? Who's allowed at the Lord's table here in our church? Paul wants us to see that another Christian, someone who's truly tasted and trusted in the work of the Lord Jesus, they might be very different from us. They might be different in custom. They don't do church the way we do. They might be different in preference. They don't do it the way I'd like to do it. Maybe different in other cultural commitments and cultural values. They don't support the same causes that we do. All those things can be true, and yet we still be bound together in Jesus. United in his blood, shed for us, brought side by side at the table of the Lord. 
All of us, friends, it's, it, it, we have to be willing to admit all of us have people that we label as them. People are out there. And yet through Jesus and his work of salvation, his work of grace, we can be drawn together and in a divided world like there was in Antioch, like ours. In a world where there was ethnic violence like there was in Antioch, like there is in ours. The people of God have a different story to tell. We have a testimony of being bound together as a new creation, a new family of God to demonstrate the reconciling power of the gospel across all kinds of barriers. When we're joined to Jesus through faith, then we are joined to one another. And that grace that draws us together, it draws together what the world and our flesh would seek to drive apart. And sometimes it takes gospel conflict to get there. And it can be good as it binds us together in Jesus. Secondly, gospel conflict has integrity. Sin's serious. And it's nothing for us to toy around with. Sin is nothing for us to see how close to the edge, how close to the line can I possibly get before falling over into sin. We don't need to play like that. John Owen, the Puritan theologian, wrote, always be killing sin or it will be killing you. But you know, not every conflict is over sin. <laughs> Nor is every conflict worth commenting on. Grace, the grace of Jesus might just as well help you keep your mouth shut in those occasions. I saw a thoughtful meme this week online. It said, you don't have to accept the invitation to every argument that you are offered. <laughs> There's a lot of truth in that. But there was sin here. What was the sin that Paul called Peter to see? Well, he labeled it hypocrisy in verse 13. Behaving a way that isn't consistent with what you believe. It's, it's play acting. That hypocrisy is acting one way in front of one set of eyes and a different way in front of a different set of eyes. And specifically with Peter, it was he had fellowship Beautiful union of fellowship in freedom of Christ, not following dietary laws when he was there with the Galatian, with the Gentile Christians in this church until his friends saw him and then he began to back away. It was hypocrisy. And Paul told him the truth. He had the integrity to tell him the truth that Peter's behavior, verse 14 says, was, wasn't in line with the truth of the gospel. So much so that Paul says he was condemned in verse 11. And that's more than saying, you're wrong, Peter. He uses the divine passive to mean God was the one who was condemning Peter's behavior. Paul said, Peter, your, beha your behavior is a betrayal of the gospel of God's grace. Paul had the integrity to tell him the truth. But he also had the integrity not to talk behind his back. He called Peter to live in line with the gospel. Verse 11, he opposed him to his face. And that doesn't necessarily imply hostility. It just is a word for honest, direct conversation. What Paul did is he went to his brother. He didn't try to circumvent. He didn't use the tools of passive aggression. But it would have been very easy for Paul to, to go behind Peter's back and begin to build a coalition to say, you know what, hey guys, um, Peter's not acting in line with the gospel here. Peter's not representing Jesus enough here. It would have been very easy for him to tell Peter's other friends behind their back. 
but he didn't do it. He opposed him to his face. That is easy for us to do as well. It's so easy for us to fire off an email, throwing shade on somebody's reputation, saying, well, I'm not so sure that what they're saying is, is true here. I'm not going to lay it out. Just want to just call their character into doubt. It's so easy for us to slander someone. It's so easy for us to talk about people behind their back. It's an epidemic in the church. And the Bible calls it sin. It's called gossip. It's called slander. And the Lord says over and over and over, he hates it all. There's integrity of telling the truth and telling the truth to someone's face. But Peter's confrontation was also public at verse 14. It says he did this in front of them all. Paul confronted Peter's public sin because it had such public effect. Not every sin has to be called out in public, but this one did because it was seeking to destroy the body of Christ. It's integrity. Gospel conflict has integrity. Telling the truth, but telling the truth to your brother or sister, not behind their back to the brother and sisters all around. Gospel conflict has integrity. Thirdly and finally, gospel conflict has a gracious goal and a gracious method. The gospel conflict has a goal of my brother and sister living in step with the gospel. That's the goal. Having someone walked closer with Christ, that's not a free pass to go around confronting everybody and being self-righteous jerks about everything. This is not about sowing discord in, among the people of God. It's about promoting peace in the body of Christ. The reality is that every one of us who are members of this church have taken vows to participate as followers of Christ, and we do it together. We do it life on life. We do it together. We pledge to help one another in a community grow up into the image of Christ. Growing in Christ is a team sport. It's not an individual sport. We all need to be joined together in discipleship relationships. I hope you have a band of brothers, a band of sisters who are helping you grow together in Christ. And sometimes it might bring conflict into your life because gospel conflict is about Christ being formed in you. It's not about every little thing I don't like about you. It's not about everything I think you're wrong about. But what might form Jesus in your life because I care about you? Look how carefully and how graciously Paul confronted Peter. It wasn't simply a rebuke. Paul didn't say to Peter, fear and cowardice is sin, stop it. Stop its law. Stop it is command, and Paul is going to tell us just a little bit later, law and command does not have the power to change your heart. But Paul's way was a way of grace. He essentially says, Peter, repent of forgetting your own gracious welcome before Jesus. Look at verse 14. He said, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews. He's saying, Peter, how can you come here and experience this freedom that we have in Christ? That Gentiles don't have to follow the traditions of the Jews. How can you have that freedom in Christ, live that way with us here, and then when your friends come, you back away and parrot their line. You gotta become Jewish first. You gotta follow all the ceremonial law or else you can't have favor with the Lord. Paul shows him it's, that's ultimately a commentary on Jesus himself. 
That Jesus is not enough in himself. You need Christ plus. You gotta have Christ plus these other cultural things as if trusting in the love of God our Father, trusting in the sacrificial work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and the spirit to bind us together as a family, that's not workable. As if that's insufficient. You have to do these other things if you want to be safe in Jesus' arms. Peter says, no, remember the gospel. Remember what you believe. It's, it's not the Jewish traditions that make us valuable. He'll say in verse 16, it's the work of Christ that merits our standing before God. Peter, your sin is managing your reputation. But remember, Peter, that in God's eyes, you are righteous. You are righteous in God's eyes. Being right in the eyes of the circumcision party, what does that matter? Remember, Peter, you are right in God's eyes through Christ. Peter, look at what God's doing. He's joining all these kinds of people together in the promise. Do you hear the heart, the gospel heart that Paul is seeking to work into Peter's life? Gospel conflict seeks the peace of God's people by rooting us in our reconciliation with God that he's provided. Gospel conflict is a concern that Christ be formed in you, Christ be formed in me, Christ be formed in us together. So God calls us to walk together as a community of grace, reminding one another of what Jesus has done because we're joined in his body by the power of Jesus. That's the way we do our relationships. Yes, we need to tell the truth, have integrity to call sin what it is, but we also need to be reminded of God's grace, of what Christ has done to break the power of sin in our lives, forgive us of its guilt, and begin to remove its pollution in our lives. We need to take one another to the cross of Jesus and see the grace and redemption that we have there. That's how the power of sin is broken in our lives. For those who are close to you, do you live that gospel before them? Do you make the gospel believable by the way you live your life? Calling out sin, yes, but in taking the next step to take refuge in the power of the cross. Is that how you parent? Or do you parent by stop it? There's no power. We gotta take the next step to the cross, the, the power of Jesus, the power of the Spirit who enables us to, believe, to behave and obey. Is that how we befriend? Is that how we love and support others within the body of Christ? Are we making the gospel believable in how we live? I'm gonna take just a quick moment to tell you how grateful I am for our shepherds in this church. We have elders and lay shepherds who together deeply want to point us all to Jesus. They love you. When they call you, they reach out to you because they want Jesus to be formed in your life. They want to be able to pray for you. They want to serve you and support you. I've experienced that from so many of the shepherds in our church, and I pray that you do too. I'm so thankful that the shepherds in this church love God's people in gospel ways, gracious way of Jesus being formed in you and in me. If you have to have conflict, let it be having a gracious goal and be done in a gracious method. Let me close with this. George Will, the columnist, once wrote a story about the lessons that could be learned from the early appeasement of Hitler, which we all know ended up in World War II. 
And one of George Will's primary lessons was this. When it's necessary to confront an expansionist dictator, sooner is better than later. Friends, sin wants to be your expansionist dictator. Sin wants to control you. Your sin wants to enslave your life. It wants to destroy you. And yet we have been given a power to break its power. It's found in the truth of the gospel. It's found in the truth of what Jesus has done and the truth of Jesus drawing us together as the body of Christ. And may that power that breaks sin, it cancels it and sets prisoners free, may it be at work clearly and openly in the family of God here at Central. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you've loved us with an everlasting love and you will never let us go. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you step into our lives bringing conflict where necessary so that we will be made to be more like Jesus. We thank you for brothers and sisters that you send our way that help us not only see our sin, but also help us see Jesus. Lord, make us a church filled with brothers and sisters like that, that we might provide to the world a picture of the reconciling power of the cross. Do it, we pray, for the sake of Jesus and his mission. Amen.